0: Healthcare Today is produced and paid for by the Radio Vermont Group. We welcome listener feedback. Email your comments to wdev at radiovermont.com. Healthcare Today with Dr. Lewis Myers, a weekly exploration of health and wellness topics affecting Vermonters. Brought to you in part by Westview Meadows and the Gary residents, retirement living the way it's meant to be. Age well, Vermont, the leading experts and advocates for older adults in northwestern Vermont. Northfield Pharmacy, pharmacy care with a personalized hometown touch. Northfieldpharmacy.com. And Kinney Drugs and KinneyDrugs.com, employee-owned and locally committed. Your participation is encouraged. Call with your questions, 244-1777 or 877-291-8255.
1: Good afternoon. I'm Dr. Lewis Myers and this is Healthcare Today. I am so honored today to have our guest, Dr. John Marshall, who's on the phone with us from Washington, D.C. Dr. Marshall is a uh, proud native of Virginia who I believe his forebears uh, date back to our founding fathers. He attended uh, college at Duke University. He went to medical school at the University of Louisville in Kentucky, went to came to Washington, D.C. to do his internship and residency at Georgetown University and has remained at Georgetown uh, to do his fellowship in hematology and oncology and over the years has become the chief uh, of the Division of Hematology and Oncology in the Department of Medicine at Georgetown University. He is also one of the nation's leading experts in the treatment uh, of gastrointestinal cancers and that's going to be our focus in the first half hour. In the second half hour, we're going to be joined by Dr. Marshall's wife, Liza. Uh, he and, uh, Dr. Marshall and his wife have written a book, uh, called Off Our Chess, A Candid Tour Through the World of Cancer. It describes, uh, his wife's diagnosis of breast cancer and the, uh, their journey, personal journey through the, the treatment process and what, what they've learned. So I hope you'll stay with us for the hour. And if you have any questions or comments, Uh, about cancer this is the time to talk to one of the nation's experts we're at 802-244-1777 dr marshall welcome
2: dr Myers, thank you very much for having me i'm quite honored and you know with all of that uh, introduction uh, i actually was born in kentucky so you know the basketball tournament uh, is just my favorite time of year because i got a bunch of schools in the in the mix
1: uh I I think uh, uh University of Kentucky did not have a good night last did night. Did not have a good night last <laughs> night, <laughs> did so I'm, I'm one I'm one down on the on that, yeah. Well, we're going to we're going to we only have half, you know, the first part of the show to talk about the actual cancers that you focus on. Let's let's start at the top and and work our way down in terms of anatomy. Let's start with esophageal cancer. Um Tell us a little bit about what we know about esophageal cancer, and specifically are the rates of this cancer increasing in this country, and is you know is the diagnosis changing and any and the treatment changing
2: yeah, and we are starting at the top and kind of going through the pipe if you will, through the plumbing and um esophageal cancers and and have evolved over time so uh, in the beginning of last century, they were higher up and they were uh, people who had smoked a lot or had a lot of alcohol consumption. And what we've seen is the tumors themselves have moved down uh, to where the esophagus plugs into the stomach, the so-called gastroesophageal junction. Um, And so we're seeing a rise in those as fewer people are smoking, as fewer people are abusing alcohol. Uh, We are seeing a sort of shift in where these tumors uh, are arising. So uh, they're not the most common of the of the bunch of GI cancers, but there are certainly plenty of them out there, um, and so it is a, it is a significant uh, health problem.
1: And within the the cancer itself, the type of cancer is changing uh, from what we call squamous to adenocarcinoma. can you talk briefly about that? What does that mean?
2: Yeah, if you think about the lining that we have on all of our surfaces, on the on the outer surface, our skin lining is more like, as you say, squamous cells. These are our outer armor. And it turns out that squamous cells line our mouths, our upper esophagus, but then it shifts when the esophagus goes into the stomach, down under our ribs um, in the abdomen. It shifts from an external squamous lining to an internal kind of glandular lining. And so when you see cancers in the internal organs like that they're called adenocarcinomas which means glands comes from glands so what we see the phenomenon that we see is that we think somewhat maybe due to obesity or a lot of stress or reflux that people get the acid that is in the stomach leaks back up and bathes the bottom part of the esophagus and actually irritates that skin-like lining, the squamous lining, and has it turn into internal organ or adeno or glandular kind of lining. And so what we're seeing is in the lower esophagus, we're seeing adenocarcinomas, gland-like cancers, uh, where they're supposed to be um, skin-like or squamous cancers. Some people are
1: familiar with the term Barrett's esophagus. What is that?
2: So Barrett's is exactly what I've just described, is that the the lower lining um, of the esophagus, the the lining of the lower, very last part of the esophagus, uh, changes into becoming a glandular lining. Um, And that's an abnormal state. And we do know that if you have that, it does increase the risk for being cancer. It's true really anywhere in the body. If there's a chronic inflammation or a chronic need for the body to repair itself, um, that's where mistakes happen and cancers happen.
1: What would be the symptoms that might concern a patient or their primary care provider, uh, in terms of a possible esophageal cancer?
2: Yeah, I mean, this is kind of a common theme throughout the GI track, is that something's just not right. These are not cancers, apart from colon cancer, we'll get to that, where we screen people. In other parts of the world, say Asia, Japan, China, there is screening for upper GI cancers like these because they're more common there. But the symptoms are going to be swallowing difficulties, maybe heartburn, acid reflux-type symptoms. But let's face it, a lot of us have those kinds of symptoms all the time. So it's really when they become uh, persistent or worsening that you would worry about it.
1: So particularly if people are having some difficulty swallowing or... Uh, food is getting caught or they're losing weight? Are these common symptoms?
2: They, they would be, yes. But unfortunately, by the time you have those kinds of symptoms, that means the tumor is fairly far along.
1: Has the treatment changed for esophageal cancer?
2: Certainly. What, one of the real shifts we've gone to is trying to reduce the need for surgery because operating on the esophagus is tricky. It changes one's life forever, of course. And so we are using more combinations of uh, drug therapies, both chemo and immuno and biologic therapies, as well as radiation, in an attempt to preserve the organ. Um, uh, you know, Using these treatments, we are uh, allowing some people to be cured of their disease without surgery.
1: Let's talk about stomach cancer next. As we know, the esophagus empties into the stomach. Um Is stomach cancer a completely different kind of cancer than esophageal cancer?
2: Well, it turns out it's maybe three different kinds of cancer. The more we are looking at cancers, the more we're understanding that it's not a one-size-fits-all. So squamous cell esophagus is different than adenocarcinomas at the joining, the gastroesophageal junction, are different from cart cancers of the stomach. And even within the stomach, there are subtypes. So um, it matters where they occur. It increasingly matters um, what the genetics of the tumor are. And we're, this is a concept called precision medicine, where we are no longer just using a microscope to define and diagnose a cancer, but we're taking it apart and understanding what genes are broken within the cancer. And those are giving us better clues about how to treat it. So the big, big answer to your question is, yeah, there's a bunch of different types and they even differ uh, within the different locations.
1: Is there a family inheritance pattern or genetic predisposition to stomach cancer?
2: With almost every kind of cancer, there are uh, inherited patterns. Now, they're not common, um, and uh, even among the common inherited patterns, they're not all that common. So the answer is yes and particularly when we see younger people who get these diagnoses or when we clearly see a pattern within families, we recommend testing of the patient uh, to try and understand is there something running in the family so that we can apply those tests to other members of the family and screen them and be uh, aware of their risk uh, and try to prevent uh, serious problems from occurring.
1: One of the... uh both for esophageal and stomach cancer, one of the, I guess, most common tests would be an upper endoscopy, which is actually a fairly quick and simple procedure. Can you just describe what happens in an upper endoscopy?
2: Yeah, it's a a little bit of anesthesia, so you don't care. We call it twilight anesthesia, maybe the best nap you're going to get. There's not a significant prep like there is for a colonoscopy where you have to clean out the bowel, but you do have to have not eaten for a little while. Um, and then uh, once you're put out, a scope is slid down with a light and a camera on the end of it, um, in through the mouth, in through the esophagus, and they can get a really very good look around. They also have the ability to um, take biopsies or samples of tissue, uh, take pictures while they're in there, et cetera. So uh, it is quick, as you described. The risks are low, but there are always some risks whenever anyone undergoes a procedure.
1: You mentioned a moment ago that uh, Asians tend to have more incidence of uh, upper GI cancers, particularly stomach cancer. Why is that?
2: I wish I knew the answer to that. Um, we used to think we knew, but it's really fascinating to uh, look at population studies where you know you take somebody who lives in, say, Japan, and they decide to move to, let's say, uh, Vermont. And it doesn't take even a single generation for that person to now get the kinds of cancers that you get where you just moved to. So if I moved to Tokyo, for example, I would begin to have the same risks for Asian cancers. And so, again, one of the common themes in GI cancers, and it's a really new area of science, and I think will be very interesting to your listeners, is this concept of the microbiome, the the bacteria that live in our mouths, that live in our stomachs, that live in our colons, live on our skin, differ when we move around the world, differ when we eat different things. We are just beginning to study this and its impact on um, our different risk factors and different health problems. And so one of the things we think is going on is that uh, in different parts of the world, we eat different things, and therefore we have different bacteria, different uh, creatures living with us as we journey through life, um, and those uh, alter our risks for different diseases.
1: In Japan and China, they have made a uh, really concerted effort to screen people, as you mentioned. Has that reduced the risk, the, the mortality of these cancers?
2: So this is a very big can of worms that you're opening there is about does screening really do what it is supposed to do? Um, Even if you look at screening here in the United States, it's hard to prove definitively that the kind of testing we put people through um, is having an impact on overall outcome. Now, we can show we pick up more cancers, whether it's a PSA or a colonoscopy or a mammogram, we clearly pick up more cancers by doing the screening. And we, by picking them up earlier, we cure more people. But where the controversy comes, there are still a lot of cancers that our routine screening tests don't pick up or the intervals at which we do the testing aren't uh, you know, ideal. And so things slip through the cracks. And so uh, the answer to your question is by most epidemiologic studies, Yes, we're having a positive impact. We are finding more cancers earlier by doing screening. Um, the other end of your question is, does this have a major impact on population and outcomes? That's harder to prove.
1: Is it commonly accepted in, in the Asian countries that uh, that they undergo regular screening?
2: Yeah. I mean, I think that is, um, that is the routine for, uh, 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 you know, we always... Um, uh, use the citation that uh, in, if you work at a Japanese company, the van pulls up, uh, and and if you if you're due for your screening, you can go out and have your upper endoscopy as mm-hmm. part of your your screening test. But we have to remember that one of the fundamental principles of screening is that things be inexpensive, be effective, be easy to apply across a large population. And whenever there's an invasive test like this of any kind, it's no longer inexpensive. Um, It is a good test, but it has risks and it has costs. So we have to think about these uh, questions as we uh, consider our own health care here in the United States.
1: talk now about uh, less common uh, cancers, but unfortunately uh, often rather uh, severe, and that includes gallbladder, bile duct, and the appendix. Why are these... uh, they are somewhat less common, but why are they so deadly
2: well i 'm not sure they 're much different. I, I may differ with you in, in that they're, you know pancreas cancer is a bad cancer. These are all bad cancers um, and uh, we 're learning more and more about some of these cancers. so for example, uh, uh, there are a lot of appendix cancers that we cure We've, in fact, the most common cause of appendicitis in adults uh, is a small. Uh, called a neuroendocrine cancer of the appendix. But some of the problem is in not able to diagnose these things early enough, not able to do the kinds of surgeries that uh, remove the cancers uh, because of their location, because of the critical location of them within the body. So they are in the same ballpark as the other cancers, I think, but they're a little less easy to treat in many ways because of their, uh, because they're not as common. There aren't as many studies done particular to these kinds of cancers. So we use, beg, borrow, and steal science and evidence from other cancers, other more common cancers, and apply it to those. So the progress hasn't been as fast.
1: Pancreatic cancer you just mentioned a moment ago, we did have a, a guest on uh, um, Dr. Ocean from uh, 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 Cornell Wheel Medical Center last year talking specifically about pancreatic cancer but it 's important to talk about it again. It is one of the one of the deadlier c- cancers. Um, is it increasing in the united states
2: no it 's not dramatically increasing in, in incidence but it's, it is it 's it's a rough one It's we haven 't cracked fat. Code yet. We haven't really, uh, we we don't do a great job of finding it early. Um, The symptoms are often vague. You can't feel it on a physical exam. Um, So you have to have done a scan on a patient really to find it. And then once we do find it, if surgery is possible, they have a very high rate of recurrence. And then on the other side of things, the medicines that we've developed for pancreatic cancer have only uh, just recently started to uh, move the bar for us. So uh, it it remains on the um, on certainly every list that I of cancers I take care of uh, as the most difficult cancer to manage.
1: Tell us about the work you're doing at Georgetown in regards to pancreatic cancer.
2: We do a lot in the space of what I was referring to earlier of precision medicine, of new new drug development in that space. So different cancers have different molecular genetic abnormalities. Each one has its own, if you will, individual barcode for those. And some of those abnormalities are the reason why the cells are out of whack. We have to remember basically that these are our own cells, and the way I like to describe it is is somebody has gone into the fuse box of the cell and switched the switches on and off so that they're not working correctly. And so by identifying the pathways, the switches, the wiring that's out of whack, we sometimes have medicines that can restore one that's broken or often block one that's stuck in the on position And so most of our work is involved in that. Now, the other major area of new science, new research in all of cancers is in immunotherapy, is using our own immune systems to fight the cancer. And so we've done a lot of work around vaccines to stimulate the immune system, to wake it up, to see our cancers as foreign. Um, But on the other side, we now increasingly know that our immune systems aren't broken, and in fact we're seeing the cancer, but the cancer can put up a kind of force field to prevent the immune system, the T cells, from going in and uh, getting the cancer, cleaning it up ourselves, if you will. And so a new wave of medicines um, called checkpoint inhibitors have been developed and are widely used now Um, that just essentially restore, uh, allow the immune system to see the cancer again and go in and fight it. And um, while that hasn't worked very well in pancreatic cancer, it has worked in almost all of the other GI cancers to some degree. So that's a very active uh, area of exciting research, both on the precision medicine side and the immune therapy side
1: very quick question before we finish this segment. Uh, we'll be talking about colon cancer in one minute, but um, there has been some studies that suggest that when adults later in life develop new-onset diabetes, that that may be a harbinger or some way connected with uh, or a warning sign for potential pancreatic cancer. What are your thoughts on that?
2: It's true. Um, we, we see people who are not otherwise at risk for diabetes, not obese, don't have the family connection to diabetes, as you say, later in life getting diabetes. And then a year or two later, we see a pancreatic cancer. And again, this is, we, you know, we don't know what's going on there. We don't know what about the cancer, the very early cancer is affecting the gland and preventing it from doing its job um, to make insulin. But clearly, it's what's happening. So um, it is a warning sign. Um, it's not a reason to get a scan on every adult who's got new onset diabetes. But certainly, uh, the more awareness we have about that, the more likely we are to pick it up early.
1: Finally, let's talk about colon cancer. I know that's been an area where you've been so involved over the course of your career. Um, colon, you mentioned a few minutes ago colon cancer screening does, uh, and we're all aware that uh, that it's important. Um, How important is it?
2: I think it's really uh, a a critical step. Now, not every colon cancer is picked up by our normal screening, but honestly, every 45-year-old, they just lowered the uh, date, um, uh, the age uh, bar to 45, should be screened for colorectal cancer. And there are a bunch of different ways to do it. Obviously, the one that we most are familiar with is the colonoscopy, an invasive procedure. But the stool testing is also an effective measure for early detection. And we know that when we find colon cancer early, we cure it. And the surgery for colon cancer can be very effective. And the fear of testing and the fear of surgery and all those things are, for the most part, unfounded. Uh, Very few people ever end up with what we call an ostomy. Most people go on to live completely normal lives. So um, I always wonder why so many people have gotten their PSA and so many people have gotten their mammogram, but so many people have not gotten their colon cancer screening when the impact is uh, maybe arguably better than those two uh, screening tests.
1: Let me take a call from Bettina in in Philadelphia while we have a moment. Patience, you're on the air.
3: Hello. Okay. Hi. So I, I wanted to know um, about the changing or the shifting sands in terms of recommendations uh, for people as they age, uh, cancer screening. So I, I noticed that there are some areas that are um, uh, touting that after age 65, mammograms aren't needed, and or Pap smears aren't needed, and that some people are saying 70. Uh, what are the factors that go into that? You know, do you have to have a crystal ball? You have to know how long a person's going well, to live. That's a very
1: good question. Specifically, let's talk about uh, colon cancer screening, since that's what we were just talking about, um, Dr. Marshall. What is there an age where people perhaps should not be thinking about having to go through colonoscopies?
2: This is a wonderful question, and I wish I knew actually the answer. So we have to remember that we're trying to apply population statistics to individuals. And, you know, somebody who's 80 years old and completely fit is likely to live to be 90, 95. And so um, is there a chance they could get one of these cancers in that window? Certainly. Is there a chance that by picking it up, um, you'll cure it? Yes. Um, but on the other hand, would they have died from it if you hadn't done the screening? And that's where this gets really controversial. So um, the, the, the big answer to this is, and it's going to create even more controversy, is that we need better screening tests. And so what is being developed fairly quickly are these blood tests that you could go in and get. Right now you can pay, they're not covered by insurance. And they can say, well, I think you've got a cancer somewhere. And then you start looking. And that's going to create a new wave of both anxiety and, and controversy about who should be screened and when and how. So, um, uh, you know, I, 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 there is no one single right answer. There is there's a lot of data that says if you haven't had any polyps or any problem by a certain age, you're unlikely to ever have that. And so the need for the test it go, falls lower. But that doesn't mean out of 100 people that one of those 100 still might get colon cancer. So that's where the controversy between population and individualism is always a tricky subject for us.
1: We, uh, we're going to need to take a break in a minute. We have had a rapid Transit through the GI system. Uh, but we're going to be back the second half with I hope your wife will join us, and we're going to talk about this remarkable book that you've uh, co-authored. Stay with us. Dr. Lewis Myers back here with the second half of Healthcare Today with Dr. John Marshall and hopefully joined by his wife, Liza. Uh, we're going to talk about a book that the two of you have written. It's called Off Our Chess, A Candid Tour Through the World of Cancer. And in a moment, you can tell us where we can find that book. But I should note Katie Couric, uh, the uh, longtime NBC correspondent and host, uh, calls it deeply personal embracingly universal, a revealing glimpse into the reality of dealing with a cancer diagnosis. Cardi- uh, oncologist Siddharth Mukherjee says it reminds us of how much we've achieved and how much remains to be done. So, Dr. Marshall, uh, and uh, is Eliza with us at this point? Yes. She's my Oh, terrific. Thank you. Well, whichever of you would like to start and tell us about the gestation and the re- uh, how this book began? So they've heard enough from me. Go
2: ahead.
3: <laughs> I'll, I'll jump in then. Um, sure, thank you again for for including me in this. Um, yeah, we um, well started with a breast cancer diagnosis in 2006, but um, having gotten through that in uh, about 2013, there was an article published in a local uh, magazine, our local community magazine, and a friend of ours who is a writer and editor and um, suggested that that we brought a sort of unique perspective to this having read the article and been involved in our lives during that period and um, what with John being a, not only an oncologist but an oncologist who had um, really uh, brought to light I think in many ways the sort of um, the, the incredible power that the breast cancer movement in particular has in the cancer community and how much fundraising they do, they bring in 10 times as much um, research funds as as all the other cancers combined and then I was ironically um, diagnosed with with breast cancer and so uh, that was sort of a, a maybe a little bit of a come to Jesus moment for all of us um and um and and her, she had this vision that that we had we had two sort of separate but very intertwined stories to tell about the transformation in our, all of our lives or both of our lives and John's several roles as both a caregiver and a, as an, an, and an oncologist um, in that in, in that story. So
1: Liza, what year was your diagnosis initially?
3: My diagnosis was actually 2006.
1: And that, was that through a mammogram initially or, or, no,
3: my, um, detection? my right breast swelled up. Mm-hmm. Uh, I actually did not, uh, I had a mammogram after that and an ultrasound, um, and then actually after the diagnosis had an MRI and it actually didn't show up on any of those things. Interestingly, it did not really show up on imaging, but, um, my breast, unfortunately for me, uh, my body has told everybody there was something wrong and, and, um, the biopsy did reveal, um, cancer cells in my, in my lymph system, it did not actually even then access the primary tumor.
1: So you started down a journey that so many thousands and thousands of women, millions I suppose, have, uh, which is uh, treatment um, and and obviously have done well. Um, uh, but what was it like uh, for both of you to hear that diagnosis when, particularly Dr. Marshall, is, is so, has to give that diagnosis to so many people over the years. Well, it, well <laughs> even, that's
2: even worse because I ended up giving it to Liza. I didn't want to be the one to break the news, but someone had copied me. Liza had gone into a, a study, actually, when she had her breast biopsy that would allow the collection of tissue for later research. And uh, one of the coordinators on the study copied me put my name down in her chart so that her pathology report came to my desk. And I was just innocently going through my paperwork one morning. It was actually the morning before Thanksgiving of that year, uh, the the Monday morning before Thanksgiving. And there was a breast cancer pathology report with my wife's name on it. And we happened to be talking on the phone. And so I was the one who got to... um, uh, Break the news, which, as you know, we don't like to do very often. And, and Liza thought it was a joke. It was it was a very funny joke, wasn't it? <laughs> yeah, it was a hysterical.
3: <laughs>
2: so uh, yeah, we we it, it really changed our lives on a dime in many ways. And and I think part of what we share in the book is the renewed understanding of just how impactful something like a cancer diagnosis is, not only to the individual, the patient who has the disease, but the family and caregiver and and all the, the, what we call the ripple effect uh, of of a diagnosis like that uh, on everyone around.
1: Yeah, I think as, as physicians, sometimes I'm sure you've had to care for your patients and yet keep a certain distance so that you can continue to function when it's your own spouse. It must feel different
2: it was very different. And in fact, it was very hard in many ways to manage that. Um, You know, I know this is, you probably have this experience too. We treat physicians. We, as doctors, treat other doctors. Um, We have physicians be caregivers. And, you know, we all try to do our best to be, uh, play our role, if you will. And, Um, So I had to learn a new role of caregiver and see the entire experience from a new perspective, and one that I did not value very much before Liza's diagnosis. I sort of had a a pretty good sympathy with the patient, but I didn't really understand the caregiver very well until I had to become one. Mm. Um, And Liza, I always call her my secret shopper. She, She taught me a lot about our business of healthcare, uh, by, um, walking together with me through her journey.
1: By the way, I might take just a moment. Uh, we know that the actor William Hurt uh, passed this week, died this week. He was in a movie in the early 1990s called The Doctor, and I, I would recommend it only because it dovetails with what we're talking about. He plays a, actually a fairly arrogant phys, uh, surgeon in the movie who then develops cancer and becomes a patient himself and that the theme of that movie too is uh, uh seeing it from a completely different perspective um and, and that's not to suggest you're ar- arrogant dr marshall you're oh, no. just, just the opposite I of that
2: was, but I, I, I learned some <laughs> lessons for sure i yeah. think we all have an arrogance that uh that makes us uh, that humbles us when we go through it and and to be honest one of the themes of, of our book as well is the post experience and then continuing to deliver cancer care knowing better what it was like yeah. to hear those messages and sure. to be delivering those messages and trying to do it um, I, I, I really lost that objectivity and it and it, it did wear me out to a point of uh, needing to take a break to avoid real serious burnout
1: well that's uh, that's in, that's very uh, interesting and and, and... Important to know. Um, Liza, what were some of the s- things that surprised you as you went through <clears throat> this process that that you had not expected?
3: Well, I think the, the sort of two components are probably related, but that I found I think most surprising um you know, cancer treatment, at least in many versions, is a full-time job, and I I hold just such great admiration for people who continue to hold down full-time jobs while going through cancer treatment. It's just you know not only the you know being there all day for for one's treatment, but then the related piece of this, which was a surprise to me, is. You know how many other things happen to you physically during that you know you know there's some things that are obvious that are listed on the side effects that you expect you know fatigue and nausea and hair loss and things like that. But I had a variety of other um you know just they were relatively minor issues but required a visit to the you know the gastroenterologist and required a visit to the eye doctor and you know again, there was half a day spent sitting in a doctor's office or you know getting there and sitting in the office so I think recognizing how much um cancer treatment not again not not only physically but just of of your time takes and then i think you know also um there's you know i, I keep referring to this in in things that we've been doing recently somebody mentioned to me that um that can, that she had heard somebody had told her that cancer is a badly wrapped gift which i think is just such an incredible way of putting it and i do think you know, as trite as it sounds, that when you come out of a cancer experience, um, you really do see the world. As a patient, you do see the world in a different way, and you do. Uh, you know, my family teases me that I've I've lost that. There is that ability to, to dismiss the trivial things in life, and maybe I've lost that a little bit being 15 years out, but I do recognize how... How lucky I am to you know to have another birthday to to you know, just see the world every day and to be a part of it even when some days it seems harder than others and Lewis it is Liza's birthday today
2: oh. <laughs> so it, well you're spending your birthday with actually us I am
1: doubly triply honored thank you a <laughs> <laughs> uh, happy birthday thank you, um, we did have a, a wonderful guest on uh, last fall who who is now six or seven years out from her ovarian cancer diagnosis um, uh, uh, treated in Boston. And, uh, she had some of the same things to say. And she also noted, uh, two, two, uh, components that were very helpful to her. One was a cancer navigator, which I think is a relatively new position or person in the hospital. And the other is the support groups, uh, specifically for, uh, people who are, uh, have ovarian cancer. Can you talk about either of those?
3: Uh, yeah, well, I think that the, you're right. The Cancer Navigator thing, at least at Georgetown, was it was not in existence. But I and John, I will, you know, you may want to talk to this, um, speak to this. But John has re- that's something he's worked really hard to get incorporated in um, at his cancer center after my treatment, and somebody who can do a lot of the things that that everybody just did for us. I mean, the physicians and the nurses because they knew us handled a lot of the scheduling and the and you know just making the road smoother and making sure we understood things um, before we got into them I mean, and again understanding that we had a both of us had more sophisticated knowledge probably of cancer than a lot of people that walk through that door um, as far as cancer support groups I'm actually was involved with a group before I ever got a cancer diagnosis through John and um, that's a local nonprofit that provides uh, we provide uh, a variety of things, cancer support or um, groups, uh, mind-body programs, education programs, and social events for both pa- cancer patients and caregivers. And I have continued to be involved with it with, with a different, again, perspective since my diagnosis of recognizing how many people don't have um, the kind of support that I did and, or, you know, have it but need something different. Uh, need, need somebody else who is specifically going through the same thing you are going through to sit and talk with and, um, and again for caregivers, you know, that's, that's, I think in many, many cases they tend to be neglected and, they are going through their own things, which they cannot discuss with their partner. Generally, I mean, it's just like you can't turn around to the patient and say, you know, gosh, I feel really terrible. You know, I'm really depressed or worried. Um, you know, they have to keep so much inside. So I think um, I, I really feel so strongly about about support groups, both disease specific and um, and broader.
2: If I could go back to the navigator, just to add to, to Liza's comments, I mean. Cancer care is so complicated and it is a big team that takes care of folks. And I've come to the recognition that it is hard to deliver really high-end cancer care in out in the rural parts of our country. It really needs a centralized access because you need all sorts of different kinds of surgeons, oncologists, radiology machines, radiation machines, interventional radiology, et cetera, and so you need this big team, and cancer care is delivered uh, in multidisciplinary teams. And so even we within the healthcare system have to coordinate around an, a, a given patient. And so if you're brand new to this and you're not a big consumer of healthcare before and you don't have a good, strong advocate, you can very quickly get lost. Um, and in this team um and not really get optimum care so the the idea of having somebody quarterbacking point guarding because it is march madness uh, the, for the team um and making sure that that patient's needs are being heard and met and that scheduling and expectations are being met uh is it's really critical to outcomes, not only the anxiety that the patient's going through, but I think in terms of success for treating and curing the cancer uh, requires an efficient team uh, to do that. And without the navigator, it really doesn't work well.
1: You bring up an important point and one that we've talked about in this show or I've brought up and with various topics that we've discussed, and that is whether or not uh, sort of Deciding between go, uh, going to a center, quote unquote, center of excellence, which often is a university type academic center, or uh, relying on community physicians or specialists. Um, so you, I think what you're saying is often, particularly with cancer, perhaps, uh, that having that highly trained team that can be found at these tertiary centers is important. Um, But on the other hand, there are hospitals where there are wonderful oncologists and where there's more of a perhaps community feel um, uh, to it uh, and people perhaps are a little less likely to get lost in the shuffle. Um, What are your thoughts?
2: You described it perfectly. I think uh, I'm always impressed. I do spend a lot of time with our community physicians um, going to visit, do education programming together with them. Uh, just remarkable, uh, quality product out in our community. So I think, um, uh, they should, they earn every right to be very proud of what they do and, uh, can with limit, more limited resources or lo- more, not resources, but access to specialists, if you will, deliver a very high quality. But there are some times when cancer care really should be given In a more centralized uh, uh, place, just because of its complexity and specialization. I mean, Liza was being seen initially at Georgetown Hospital, my hospital, Um, and as I tell all of my patients, I think if you should get another opinion somewhere else. And so she sort of did the reverse and went to see somebody in our community, a good friend of ours, but but uh, in the community uh, because. You know, it, it had a different feel, and maybe Liza, you'd want to comment on that a little
3: bit. Yeah, no, I, it was um, it was a difficult decision. It, they were very different feels. I, you know, Georgetown in many ways for me is home. We had both our children there, and I grew up in the Washington area, and so I had been seeing doctors there for years, uh, even before John was there. But um, but for that same reason, everybody there knew me, and it you know it felt a little. Um, sure.
1: That was your oh, community hospital, really.
3: Yeah, it was, right, in many senses it was. Um, and uh, But so, you know, then when I went to the community practice, I actually, in a sense, as you say, it was the reverse. I felt a little more anonymous there um, and, you know, could hide a little bit more. And, of course, some of it's just and, – and, again, a little bit reverse. I, maybe I, I don't know if that's true or not. But, um, you know, the community practice was a much more um, – what's the right word john i'm I'm trying to you know uh um not luxurious but yeah, they, yeah. They, they were it was just fancier I mean you know John jokes in the book, I think about you know the the requisite fish tank in the waiting room uh-huh. um but uh so so some of it was that but in and 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 part of the reason I picked Georgetown I mean there were many reasons I picked Georgetown, but honestly, one of them was just was just literally convenience because John was going into work every day and it was easier for him as my caregiver, you know, patients frequently do have to make decisions around what works for the rest of the family, I think. And, um, and for us, he, you know, he could drive me in and drive me out without having, we
1: have have to also remember that, uh, and I didn't, Mention this, but of course, research studies that often right, the research right. studies are taking place at more at academic centers not always but right. but uh, and, and uh, getting into a research study partic- not only helps the overall increase in knowledge, but if you have a cancer that 's very very difficult to treat and where the usual treatments are not a great option, um, getting into a research study could be life saving so I always encourage patients to be open to that to talk to their primary care or their oncologist and and ask if there are any research studies within a general geographic area that they might uh, qualify for
2: yeah. I I want to put one more comment on this team concept because I think it'd be very interesting to your to your listeners and that is if if you get one thing what like your surgery done at one hospital system and your scans done at another hospital system et cetera. That actually, while it might be convenient for you, is not the best care. So, if you do pick a team, my guess, my recommendation is to go all in with that team because they just they coordinate better, they plan together okay. than trying to connect the dots between our ever increasing hospital systems.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So, as a you, of course, some of the a lot of the book, I think you you talk about becoming a, a caregiver. Uh, Dr. Marshall, what were the challenging aspects for you in terms of being a caregiver? Well, I was a bad at
2: it although a lot of, oh, all the time. Oh, that's bad bad. That I <laughs> for me. Um, well, You know, uh, the, the traditional role of caregiver um, is one who advocates, takes notes, you know, researches, pushes the healthcare team to, you know, on behalf of their their, their patient, if you will, uh, their loved one. And um, I I did the note-taking and the like, but... Because I kind of knew too much, I had trouble, and and Liza and I have this kind of relationship, I knew that in the end she was going to be the one to make the decisions. And so I couldn't really coach too much. I didn't want to coach too much. I felt awkward um, in that situation. Um, So I could provide information, I could be a resource, but in the end it needed to be Liza's decision. And that line of uh, it, it was a little different for me, I think, than it is it is for others. Um, where, you know, if I was if I was a doc, if, if if Liza had a problem that I wasn't that familiar with, then I would have sure. dug in and done the research and and been that sort of nudge. And
1: I there. imagine seeing the the side effects. Uh, on a daily basis at home has, as you said earlier, has just simply increased your empathy for what patients are going through.
2: Yeah, that was Liza. Always said if I if I have a question, I'll ask you in the middle of the night instead of calling the
1: whoever's on call. Right. Uh, Liza, uh, let me ask you. We just have a couple minutes left, but uh, this amazing statistic that that you mentioned that uh, breast cancer uh, support groups uh, have amassed ten times the amount of funding uh, that all the other cancers combined why is that uh, do you think and, and and what lessons can can other people with other kinds of cancers learn
3: yeah well i you know breast cancer has been a, just a remarkable marketing um juggernaut in many ways and i think you know john and i disagree, have disagreed about this perhaps in the past but you know i think a lot of that has to do with the fact that um that women's Health care for so many years, you know, studies were done only on men. I mean, not just—I mean, uh, breast cancer, perhaps not, but really, you know, tre- uh, research studies across the board were really focused on on white men, and um, and I and treatment for breast cancer was quite radical and and really didn't take the concerns of women into account. I think, and so I think a lot of that is a reaction to that, and a, and a, and a well deserved reaction to that but women. Um, you know finally yeah. it had enough so to speak and, and, and banded together yeah, it to may have dovetailed to re- some
1: extent but the women's movement itself
3: right right exactly exactly yeah. yes I think all those things sort of came about at the same time and um uh, and then, you know, thanks to John, always points out thanks to Betty Ford too, who was one of the first people to really publicly talk Indeed. about having breast cancer and making it something that that women and and men could discuss openly and not not keep it behind closed doors. So um, I think, as I say, I think there are good reasons for the reason for breast cancer's great success, but in the process, I think a, a lot of the other cancer, all of the other cancers, um, have really um, have 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 lost the, their. Um, the attention and and the research uh, have not not kept up, certainly. Well, they
1: all deserve um, attention. I want to, before we, we're going to have to end very shortly, but where can people find your book called Off Our Chess?
3: Uh it's well um it's available everywhere basically. Amazon, Barnes okay. and Noble uh bookshop, which is the indie independent bookshop um website. All of those are carrying it. There wow. is an uh ebook version it, and it is it has gotten national
1: attention. I want to thank you both for writing the book, for sharing your story. It's it's really inspiring and thank you so much and happy birthday, uh Liza. <laughs>
3: thank you. Thanks so um, much for having
1: us. Oh I, it was a pleasure and an honor. I will be away next week, uh, but we'll look forward to talking to you in two weeks. Until then, please be kind to yourselves. Be kind to others.
0: today with Dr. Lewis Myers, brought to you in part by Age Well Vermont, the leading experts and advocates for older adults in northwestern Vermont. Westview Meadows and the Gary Residence. Retirement living the way it's meant to be. Kinney Drugs and KinneyDrugs.com. Employee owned and locally committed. Northfield Pharmacy. Pharmacy care with a personalized hometown touch. NorthfieldPharmacy.com. The music for
1: this program was written and produced by Armin Bayajan.